Hello, and welcome to this episode of Indubitably. Hey, Josh, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you doing? I'm I'm okay, but I gotta say, I had a really weird thing pop up quite literally. I'm I'm 37 and I have a wisdom tooth that's trying to make an appearance. Uh yeah, it's it's kind of painful. It's so bad. I'm thinking about probably getting it extracted. Hopefully, what happened to me with my wisdom teeth doesn't happen to you. I've had the same tooth in the same place, the lower right jaw extracted twice already. And uh, it looks like a third one is already crowning out. So I've had the joy of ex- of experiencing the crowning pains three times in the same spot. <laughs> that sounds awful. I think when I talk to my dentist, if I have them take this one out, I'll make sure that they like scoop around in there for any strays. You have the same tooth three times. How does that work? Yeah. Well, the first time I, they took out the tooth, like, you know how normally they're supposed to be for the benefit of our listeners, I'm doing a lot of hand motions on the, on camera, but there's supposed to be two tines coming out of the bottom of the root, like a two prong fork. That's the normal tooth. For me, it's like the two prongs were like all gnarled up together. And I wondered why that was. Turns out it's because there's another tooth crown underneath that was preventing it from growing normally. And so when I saw that happen with the second time they took it out, I was like, oh boy, there's another one. Oh, oh my God. My God. What if it's just teeth all the way down forever? Oh my God. Are you mostly teeth? Oh, I hope not. That sounds like a terrible existence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, by the the way, for our listeners, our mostly tooth friend here is uh, Thomas, one of our longtime listeners and friends of the podcast. And apparently like Kelly has some wisdom teeth woes. All of this has inspired me to move up my next dental appointment. I did have one x-ray already, but I'm going to make sure they do a few extra um, and I'm definitely a hundred percent willing to do that whole like sleep dentistry thing. Just rip it out of my face. I am really over this whole thing. And I hope there's no more teeth lurking back there. I'm surprised that you actually partake in some of these modern procedures or modern medicine in general as a vegan, uh, considering most of it was tested on animals. I didn't test it on animals. What do you want me to do? Suffer? But you don't think that you're benefiting from the suffering of the animals? I can acknowledge that maybe animal testing wasn't a good practice and still get my medical needs met. And you don't think that you benefiting from it incentivizes current mistreatment and future mistreatment of animals? I'd say there's a social shift away from that sort of practice. I recognize it still does happen, but, you know, despite the fact that I am a vegan, I I do consider myself slightly more important than other creatures. Hmm. You know, people have said that about other people in history also. Well, once again, it looks like we disagree on something. So it sounds like we need to, we need to have another argument. Argument? I thought it was a debate podcast, not an argument podcast. Explain the difference. Well, well one, we have a moderator who will tell you that I won at the end. <laughs> the other one, we just yell at each other. You haven't wired my payments yet, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Kelly that's how I won our last debate. Oh, wow. Okay. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Today, let's look to settle this argument of whether or not we should continue using scientific research produced by unethical means through the time-tested technique of a debate set up for you in today's episode of Indubitably between Josh and Kelly. I will be moderating to keep the discussion focused and will crown our winner at the end of the debate. Here's the format for today's debate. Each of them will get a six-minute opening speech, and then we'll give a five-minute cross-examination period in which they'll poke holes in each other's arguments followed by a six-minute rebuttal speech. After that, I will be questioning them on their arguments before they get a final chance to make their case in a three-minute summary speech. After all of that happens, I will be making my adjudication. I'll be discussing the debate that we've had, and I'll be crowning a winner. So with all of that being laid out, I'd like to invite Kelly to make her opening speech, explaining why we should use research, even if it was produced unethically. As society advances, we often think we know better than the generations which came before us. And if we do, it is only as a result of building our knowledge upon the research and work created by our ancestors. 
Well, not my ancestors, they were probably farming potatoes, but I'll be addressing the stance of continuing to use research, which may have been performed, quote unquote, unethically through three areas of analysis. First, using a lens of practicality. Second, some exploration of moral relativism. And finally, a cost-benefit analysis. So first, how far back in time do we review ethical standards? For instance, I do not buy products that were tested on animals. Lucky for me, the ingredients in the cruelty-free products I buy now are currently free of ethical concern. Or are they? According to the FDA, many raw materials using cosmetics were tested on animals years ago when they were first introduced. A cosmetic manufacturer might only use those raw materials and base their cruelty-free claims on the fact that the materials or products are not currently tested on animals. So should I throw out all my makeup? Uh, Stop laughing. I do wear makeup sometimes. Or all of my nail polish. My antidepressant was tested on animals. So would it have been ethically better for me to continue my post-election mental spiral in 2016 and see where I landed? And how far back do we look? What is the chain of custody, so to speak, around who owns the ethics of scientific research? Are cosmetic companies which use ingredients in 2022 as culpable of animal cruelty as the scientists which tested these products in 1952? Some of this research happened so long ago, we can't even know how it was conducted, ethical or otherwise. What then? I'm not asking these questions because I expect Josh to answer them. I'm asking them because they are impossible to answer. For the issue of ambiguity and the practical issues with implementing a total ban on the fruit of the rotten tree when it concerns science and research, there is no clear way to assign guilt or responsibility. But that brings us to the next discussion, which is what even is ethical? Modern science faces the issue still. There is no agreement on a standard for defining ethics. Criteria are arbitrary as they were not handed down by God, regardless of what some old ass books might say, nor were they in existence within nature before we got here. Therefore, criteria are always informed by the times we live in, the context of the environment in which we currently exist, and our biases, unconscious and otherwise. I am of the opinion, brace ourselves, that all people are equal, for instance which seems obvious and irrefutable, but it is just that, an opinion. In order to believe whatever Josh is advocating for, he necessarily has to point to absolute truths, which science itself does, even if we disagree with how they got to those truths through methodology, which is where the ethical discussion is happening. There are people who point to documents such as the Bible as justification for humans using nature however they see fit. Those people right now, today, may view animal testing as perfectly ethical. Are they wrong? It feels wrong. But you cannot objectively say that it is. You lack the omniscience. You have not yet looked into the bucket of truth. That is a reference to the Upright Citizens Brigade from 1998. Google it. But beyond that, what do we lose in the pursuit of moral superiority? There are countless examples we could look to, which sadly speaks to how necessary we viewed the research at the time. Let us acknowledge how horrible those things were and also how horrible things would be for all of humanity if we abandoned them due to their origin. HeLa cells from Henrietta Lacks, which have been critical for cancer and HIV research, crucial to the development of polio and COVID-19 vaccines, and any number of advancements in over 75,000 studies globally were taken from her without her knowledge or consent, which is a violation of her rights as a person. Furthermore, As a woman of color, hers is just one of many stories of the world taking advantage of some of the most marginalized people in modern society. Would we do it differently now? Yes. Does that justify discarding the progress we've made? If you are comfortable with how many people would otherwise be dead without the HeLa cells, I I guess it does. But what else do we lose if we whitewash history? We are complex creatures. We contain multitudes. We can simultaneously shame the scientists who came before us for doing those abhorrent things and find ways to advance science now in ways that are much more palatable. And I hesitate to say that it's ethical, as I've already established there's no such thing in absolute terms. And we can also save and improve lives using research from the origins we now despise. If we do not use that research, then not only do its benefits disappear, but so do the narratives of the awful things that we did to get it. We cannot shy away from history. 
but we can feel bad about taking advantage of the atrocities which make our lives livable. The most Josh can prove today is that we are complicit in it, but he will not be able to prove that we should reverse course. It's for those reasons I'm proud to propose. Thank you, Kelly, for that wonderful speech. Uh, I'd like to now invite Josh to come up and give a speech telling us why we should not continue using scientific research produced by unethical means. Josh, you have the floor. When we talk about unethical experimentation, the first example that probably comes to mind are those conducted by the angel of death, Nazi Joseph Mengele during World War II. He did experiments on 1,500 sets of twins. Out of the 3,000 victims involved, only 200 survived. Other victims of this so-called angel had their bones, muscles, or nerves ripped out of their body with no anesthesia. To study the effects of hypothermia, he would force prisoners to sit in tanks of freezing water for up to three hours. And then, just to see what would happen, would throw these same people into boiling water for rewarming. While this is certainly the most famous example of unethical experimentation, it's far from the only one. Arthur Wentworth punctured the spinal canals of 29 infants and toddlers in an effort to prove his procedure was safe without explaining what was happening to their parents. Robert Bartholo applied a needle directly to the brain of his patient, shocking her until she lost consciousness and then died three days later. Saul Krugman fed milkshakes laced with feces to children with intellectual disabilities to intentionally infect them with hepatitis. Milkshakes laced with feces. And Kelly wants to talk about moral relativism. She brings up examples of animal experimentation or historical studies where it might be impossible to discern methodologies. There might be some gray area that exists in these cases, but oftentimes we have very clear black and white instances. And I think I've given you plenty of examples where this is the case. And I'm telling you about these cases because I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that these experiments, or let's call them what they are, torture, I don't want you to think that this torture was an isolated case, only performed by the Nazis, led by Adolf Hitler, our go-to example of the worst person in the history of the earth. In fact, the other most famous example of this was performed all the way up until 1975 by the United States Public Health Service. The Tuskegee experiments took 600 black men, over half of whom suffered from syphilis, and without informing them, experimented on them while failing to treat them with the already accepted and proven cure of penicillin. So this is not something that only happens in the annals of history carried out by the most evil of regimes, although we can have a conversation about where the U.S. government falls into that. And this is my first main argument against the use of these discoveries. I'll definitely get to some of the principled stances against it, although many of them should be fairly obvious. Don't torture people. But on a practical level, using this information from criminals of the past incentivizes doctors to continue to ignore ethics in the present when they think they can make a compelling utilitarian argument. In fact, it doesn't just incentivize them to do this, it rewards them. I started my speech by talking about Joseph Mengele, who I'm sure we've all heard of before. He's been immortalized into the history books because of these experiments. And sure, you can say that he's remembered as a villain, but what message does it send when on one hand you try to paint him as a horrible person, but on the other hand, you take his work and utilize it with the justification that you are saving someone's life or making the world a better place? Look at this asshole whose work is fixing some of the biggest problems we're facing today. You are literally proving that the decisions that they made were correct. And if that's the case, why not do it again? And we are. The Tuskegee experiment was also not the end of this type of experimentation. Many clinical trials are to this day carried out in developing nations for arguably the same reasons. Regulations are more lax there, and the risk of bad press from any negative outcomes is lessened. A 2008 report published by the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations, revealed details of all sorts of unethical trials carried out in places like India, Nigeria, Russia, Argentina, or Nepal. It chronicles, for example, the unrecorded deaths of 14 women in Uganda during a trial of the anti-HIV transmission drug nevirapine. 
How can we tell these researchers to stop when we happily consume the fruits of their labor? So the question is, if we can't use the discoveries from these experiments, what do we do? The answer is we recreate the experiments ethically and humanely. Don't target the most disadvantaged of our world as subjects. Provide real and honest disclosure to participants as you get consent. Ensure that we prioritize safe procedures and conditions over the ease of procuring information. It is almost never the case that the data uncovered in these experiments was absolutely necessary to come to our modern-day understanding of issues or diseases. Former Nazi Werner von Braun was included in the Apollo space program that landed humans on the moon. Are we to think that we could not have accomplished this feat without him? The Tuskegee experiment is hardly defining in our understanding of syphilis. This knowledge is not necessary, it's convenient. And on my side of this debate, I don't think it's a stretch to say that convenience is not a justification for torture. We should not be using this information if it was collected through unethical means. Thank you, Josh. We will now be moving into a five-minute cross-examination period in which they'll be able to poke holes into each other's arguments. Kelly, you have the floor. Josh, I'd like to dive in a little bit into what you're actually proposing. Are you saying that we should cease using all of this research immediately until it's been produced by ethical means? And if so, how long is that going to take and what do we do in the interim? I think in the cases that I brought up where the research is very obviously unethical, then yes, we should stop using it. And I think that, as I pointed out at the end of my speech, it's very rare that that research is mandatory, necessary to come to the point where that we're at medically. And if, for whatever reason, that is going to push research back a couple of years, I'm fine with that. But my example of Henrietta Lacks is an issue where it was obviously unethical and so much science is based upon that cell line, we would basically have to stop using COVID vaccines. Are you comfortable with that? So Henrietta Lacks, I was going to bring this up in my second speech, but I'll do it now. Henrietta Lacks is an interesting case because now actually her family has been working with researchers to come to agreements on how they can consensually use the, the cells that we've gotten from her. And I think that's a great example of how if we do this ethically, we can still get the benefit without victimizing people and benefiting from that victimization. So you're working through a revisionist framework, though. They're retroactively giving consent to something that she didn't. And that's a form of whitewashing history, isn't it? You could argue that. But I think that finding consent through the family is definitely showing like a good faith effort to receive it, as opposed to taking it without anybody having knowledge or anybody giving consent. How would you feel if a descendant of one of Mangala's victims gave consent retroactively? I think there's a difference also in terms of the amount of time that passes, right? This is Henrietta Lacks' immediate family as opposed to generations later. I think that that makes a big difference morally. There are survivors of Mangala's experiments who are on TikTok with their grandchildren discussing the experiments. It's not that remote. It's not that far back in history. So what happens if they say, the research actually does benefit humanity. Despite my personal pain, I'm fine with the progress we've made. Right. I think that goes a long way towards taking something out of the realm of immorality and unethical and into a acceptable spot. And I think certainly I'm not denying that there are some gray areas in this what is ethical and what is not ethical. But in my speech, I also pointed out some areas in which I think it's very clear that it is unethical black and white. How do you deal with situations like that where the immorality of the, of the experimentation is undeniable? You can accept that some things were incredibly horrible and would verge into what we commonly accept as unethical. But at the point where you're casting this as a categorical proclamation, we would have to make decisions about what is and isn't. And in the gray areas, we would lose a lot of research and probably overcorrect for the previous sins of our forefathers. How much progress and medical advancements would we be, be giving up if we did that? I don't think many. I, I honestly, as I said at the end of the speech, I think that a lot of this progress was convenient rather than necessary, and it would have been done otherwise. And I think there's examples of that. Uh, I'd be interested if you have an example of something that you say could only be done through the research that we've gotten to. Um, you can do that in your second speech. 
But you and your questions and your speech look a lot to history, whereas in my speech, I point out that this is something that's still happening. Would you use, if this is your stance, would you use the results of experiments that are happening now if they were for the greater good? If there was no other means to achieve that that scientific research, and if you're arguing that there is, then obviously we should be using those alternative means. But there are some forms of research which are happening currently which have no alternative and borderline unethical would be the things that have to do with like horseshoe crab blood, where they basically mass slaughter horseshoe crabs to get their blood for scientific research, another key component of COVID research. So, I mean, how, how far back are we looking at sins? How, what about our sins that are, we're currently performing for the sake of humanity? I don't think you can draw these distinctions. Right. Well, I think it's a little problematic when the example you bring up is animals and we both know you're vegan. I eat bacon. So I definitely, that falls into that gray area where we would have to make decisions based on an amorphous ambiguity. But as I bring up with the experiments in Uganda, the unrecorded deaths of 14 women, I think is black and white. And I'm not sure how your side deals with that. All right. Thank you both very much. I'd like to now invite you both to come up and give a six minute rebuttal speech, starting with Kelly. It's funny that prior to actually having this discussion, Josh was like, I kind of know what you're going to talk about because I could have said the same thing about Josh bringing up Nazis. That was the expected. Of course, Nazis are bad and they did bad things, but I don't think that's where the most interesting discussion about this ethical consideration actually exists. I think it exists more in the ambiguities. And I think the ambiguities are the largest area of concern for what actually happens with the scientific research. Despite the horrible examples that was brought up, a substantial amount of this research was done with positive intent, and it was consistent with with contemporary ethical standards. So in this discussion, where we're listening to Josh list off all these things that happened that were horrible, and the people who did it harmed other people, and they had negative intent while they were doing it, they intended to actually dehumanize and hurt people. Those are fairly obvious, unethical things. If we're deciding to uh, agree that there is such a thing as an absolute when there are ethics concerned. However, despite these horrifying outliers, Josh has added an additional criteria to the list of practical concerns that I have already brought up, such as how far back are we going when we're looking at ethics and how far back are we looking at ethical standards of the time? Now we have the criteria of how do we determine the intent of the research that was done as well? It's very obvious what the intent was from Mangala. Is it obvious in every other instance in which someone was dehumanized that that's what the researchers were actively trying to do? Does that consideration for what their mindset was actually inform their ethics and change how we should view the research in our modern uh, 30,000 foot view where we apparently know better than everybody in the past. So I'm not going to defend a Nazi or their research, but I'm worried about the penumbras, the areas where it's gray, where the shadows are slightly cast and slightly not there. And what we're going to lose when we decide to overcorrect as we discussed during the cross-examination, which I think is very likely the outcome when we say that we have to disregard the research that came from things we currently consider to be unethical in the past. There is much more of that research than there is with the cherry-picked examples that we hear from Josh. They are horrible, and the things that happened in the past, probably a lot of them were horrible. I mean, the, the stories that I found in my own research that I'm trying to defend are difficult to defend in a lot of cases, but it was a different time. And holding people of the past to ethical standards of our current way of doing things is unfair. No one can defend themselves. When it comes to the issues that Josh brought up about research that's happening now, which is obviously unethical, I think we can agree that that research should should cease because there are people who are actively being hurt by it. But I don't think that's what this discussion is about. I think this discussion is about like provenance of the research things that happened before now and what we do with information that was produced during a different time. Speaking of ethical considerations, the answers that we get for what we should do in our current times with the research that was done in the olden times is also an ethical concern. 
what are the ethics of withholding existing care from sick people? Because we are upset about something that happened a hundred years ago. How much is that benefiting and honoring the, the, the sacrifices that people made to bring that research to us? This, I think, is probably one of the biggest ethical considerations. I know utilitarianism can be used to justify bad things. We've talked about that at length on this podcast. But by making a principled stance and saying, oh, this research was so terrible in the past, taking medical care away from people right now, withholding COVID vaccines or cancer treatment right now doesn't undo the damage of of victimizing people that happened in the 1940s. I think that the more appropriate way of honoring the fact that people were abused in the past is making sure that not that their abuse means something, but keeping their stories alive through the fact that the more we actually rely on this science, the more we learn the origins of this science. I don't think anybody would know what happened to Henrietta Lacks if her cell line was not still active and still being used for so much research. That crime against her would have been committed either way, but the the benefits that happened for all of society come with the narrative of the reason you have a COVID vaccine right now is because people in the medical profession violated a woman and you should know her name and know her story and recognize that you get to be alive today and have a good quality of life and good health care because somebody else went through something really horrible in the process. I don't think we can honor her enough for that or anybody else who was in this position of victimhood, but I don't see how we can keep that narrative alive if we disregard the scientific research. And I don't see that there's any actual utility in making people now sick in order to somehow ethically cleanse ourselves of the wrongdoing that happened a hundred years ago. For those reasons, again, I, I stand firmly in favor of continuing to use this research, despite how horrifying some of that research was. Thank you, Kelly. I'd like to now turn the mic over to Josh to give his six minute rebuttal speech. Thank you. I talked about the practical concerns of the mindset forwarded by Kelly in my first speech. Here, I want to touch on a couple of the philosophical concerns. First, I'll discuss moral culpability. And second, the dangers of, as Kelly predicted, utilitarian precedents. Now, very obviously, the people who have conducted these experiments, the Mengalas or Krugmans, are morally culpable for their actions. But are we, this many years later, or not so many years later, in some of the examples I outlined earlier, also culpable if we reap the benefits that were gained through the torture and killings of the victims of this research. I have two reasons that would suggest yes. I think that the easiest example here is that of the receipt of stolen property. And ironically here, we can look again to the Holocaust. Thousands of artifacts were stolen by Nazis from Jewish families during this time period. And even generations later, we are making efforts to return them to their rightful owners. Those currently in possession of them, are not the same people who stole them, yet we certainly wouldn't suggest that the original owners from whom they were stolen should not have their property returned to them. I think an interesting example here that we've discussed would be Henrietta Lacks. Her cells were taken and used without consent. And one thing I would point out in Kelly's line of reasoning here is that the mindset that says it's okay to victimize people, to not get consent, for example, for the greater good, is the reason why we didn't ask Henrietta Lacks herself to see if she was okay with the way her cells were being used. Now, the best option we have is to talk to her family, get consent from her family, who, as I said earlier, has worked with researchers, coming to agreements on how we can use and learn from her cells without re-victimizing her. Secondly, besides this idea of stolen property, is the issue of autonomy a fairly well-respected theory of what makes something moral suggests that we need to treat people not as a means to an end, like we did with Henrietta Lacks, but as an end in it of itself. And one of the best ways to ensure this is to obtain consent. Obviously, the people involved in these experiments did not give their consent to be victimized. But 
They also have not and cannot give their consent to have the information we have literally extracted from their bodies used as well. Our use of their suffering re-victimizes them and makes us complicit. The second thing I want to talk about here is the idea of the dangerous utilitarian precedent that is set by this. Kelly's argument of ambiguity takes our morality out of a realm where we could make objective claims like torture is bad, period. Placing people in danger without consent is bad, period. Identifying groups of people unable to advocate for themselves and using them for experiments is bad, period. Now, instead of those statements, we have a question. How much good justifies how much suffering? And that's a super shitty question to ask. An example here, lots of surgeons still use a book of anatomical illustrations produced by a Nazi physician because it's considered to be one of the finest anatomical guides to the human body ever produced. The Bernkopf Topographical Anatomy of Man was drawn using the corpses of people killed by the Third Reich. Yet, doctors now want to access the best material possible to guide their work. If you were about to head into surgery and you knew that you had a better chance of survival, if your surgeon could refer to this book, would you want them to refer to it? Problem with this question is you, as somebody that is in a position to benefit from the suffering of others, should probably not be the person that's allowed to ask that question. Because when people in power are allowed to decide this utilitarian framework of how much good justifies how much suffering, we get all sorts of nonsense happening. Another example here would be sarin gas, something again, I know Kelly pointed out, I'm harping on the Nazis, but they did a lot of stuff. It was real bad and we're still benefiting from it. Sarin gas is one example used in chemical warfare. Under her standards, this could be totally justified by an American government who points out that there is great evil in this world and we as America have to come in and wipe it out for the greater good, of course. These scientific advances were obtained immorally and now are being used immorally with the same justification that we have heard throughout Kelly's speeches. Because she wants morality to be ambiguous and in the gray area rather than black and white. And something to point out, it's always the underprivileged. It's so easy for those of us who are receiving the benefits of medical research, the benefits of healthcare, to undervalue the lives of those people who suffered in order for this information to come to the forefront. Utilitarianism is not the simple math equation that it often seems to be. And in this case, we believe that the sum is always immoral. Thank you very much for that six-minute rebuttal speech. Now we're going to move into the question section where I ask both of you questions that have cropped up into my head and hopefully the listeners' heads uh, while listening to your respective arguments. So let's start with Josh. Josh, the, the first question that comes to mind is that there is very much a sense of the past and future versus the present. Uh, when we're talking about suffering, because you very much bring up the lack of consent of the past, the violation of victims in the past, as well as the potential for violation of for the violation of victims in the future. However, Kelly's argument is very much that if this is immediately implemented, then there will almost certainly be a lot of suffering happening in the present. And so my question to you is, why do we care for the suffering of those who are long gone? compared to the real suffering of those that exist today? Yeah, I think two things. I think one, that's a, a self-fulfilling argument. And two, I think it's a bit of a straw man. So one, the self-fulfilling argument, when we have this attitude that it's okay to victimize people, Henrietta Lacks is a really good example of this, then we let ourselves go for a decade and build research immorally off of that, and then get to the point where we say, well, now we can't stop using it because we rely on it so much for the science that we have currently. If we had the stance that I'm forwarding from the beginning, we would never get to that situation in the first place. And the second answer to that question would be, again, I think it's a straw man to suggest that this material and this information, the data that we've collected is unique in some way where it could not be replicated 
in an ethical study. And that's my suggestion for the solution of how we treat people now is to do the experimentation ethically and use that um, to deal with the problems we have currently. Thank you. All right. My next question is for you, Kelly. You've based a lot of the impacts of your arguments on the pragmatic impacts, uh, the suffering that will ensue, or perhaps a lack of benefit to those going forward in that there's there you wouldn't get the benefit of education. However, why is this lack of education non-exclusive when Josh is proposing such a large and impactful change to science? One thing I think is key to Josh's argument is that it's not just that we wouldn't be able to use the vaccines that were created on the backs of research that happened unethically, that if we are not using this research whatsoever, and he points to this as a surgical book, keep in mind, this is his own example, we wouldn't even be able to use it as reference material. So we would essentially have to start from square one. We would know that a cure for something exists. We would know that a treatment exists. We would know that a preventative type of medication exists, but we would have to start from nothing and nowhere if we're saying we cannot use anything with unethical origins. And that not only sets us back on an educational level, because that's not how research is ever conducted. You always build upon things that have already happened and develop knowledge upon previous discoveries, but it would set back our progress in keeping people healthy and alive, even further than just saying, replace everything with good research gradually. This would, this would devastate people. This would devastate populations. I don't think the practical considerations can be ignored as much as we're trying to make this a stance about being like good people or whatever. And that actually brings me to my follow-up question to you, Josh, about a sense of scale. Ultimately, Kelly is bringing forth large-scale suffering that people face in ways that can oftentimes be as horrific and visceral as Mengele's experiments. Meanwhile, Mengele's experiments, while horrific, only happen to a few thousand people from the sounds of it, if what Kelly is saying is true, that the foundations of modern day science and medicine are being undermined, many more thousands will die uh, and suffer these large scale atrocities. The first answer to that, I think, is you're asking the same kind of utilitarian question that I talked about in my second speech, where it is literally mm. how much good justifies how much suffering? And again, I think that's a really dangerous question to ask. I think that there are some things and some principled stances in our world that have to be absolute. And things like the torture of 3,000 people, uh, I don't care if it was 10 people. I don't care if it was three people. When you start asking that question, you start to get answers like, it is okay for us to murder or torture three people if it's going to save a hundred lives. And for the variety of reasons, uh, besides just on a basic level, the ways that that could be abused by the systems of power that we have, I don't think that's a road we want to go down. Thank you. You're making my job easy, Josh, because all I can do is really turn that question around on Kelly. What is it about this particular debate that makes suspending this belief, that makes this turning to utilitarianism the right choice? Whether or not it's the right choice, it's the choice that we as a society or all societies do make, whether or not we want to acknowledge it. It's just that in most cases, we do it much more passively. When we decide to fund specific schools over other schools, we are passively letting children enter the, the school to prison pipeline like and, and leading to their early demise as well. We're making these choices in so many ways, whenever we have any sort of resource and we choose to allocate it to one person rather than the other. In, in this example, it's just so much more obvious that we're making a choice between three people versus 10,000. But I don't think we can act like that's not what we're doing in every aspect of society. When we choose uh, to vote for certain people who fund certain military initiatives to save certain people who are up oppressed by certain regimes, but not others. We're choosing some people over the other. I think that that's just how we have to organize society because we have limited resources. So why not acknowledge it 
that, yeah, sometimes we have to trade off between a small amount of people for the, for the betterment of a lot of other people. Well, thank you both for uh, amazing answers. I'd like to now invite you two to give me three minute summaries, summarizing what you felt was the main thrust of the debate and how you think I should weigh what you've given me today. Finally, in Thomas's question period, we got Kelly to admit it. She is okay with sacrificing some people for the benefit of others. But she makes that claim without answering some of the really important questions that I've asked throughout this debate. How many people? What, what is the right ratio of people dying to people living? And who gets to decide what that is? Her, her only justification is, well, you know, we do it in other places. This time it's just really obvious. I would suggest we shouldn't be doing it anywhere. And if this is the one that's really obvious, maybe this is a good place to start cracking down on it. Maybe this is a place where we could finally implement some sort of moral stance that is absolute and not up to subjectivity and not up to interpretation. We've talked a lot throughout this episode about gray areas. And the question I've asked throughout the debate is, if Kelly's stance is that some things could be moral and other things might not be moral, is there a line at which Kelly would reverse her position and not use the evidence gathered from these experiments? Would that line be letting African-American men die when we could have cured them? Would the line be shoving needles into the spines of babies? Would the line be milkshakes laced with feces? The problem with a gray area is as long as you can come up with a reasonable sounding justification, it lets those in power who stand to benefit use it to explain away the victimization of the less fortunate. And as long as we are included in that group that stands to benefit from this research and from these experiments, we are complicit. Not just experiments that happened in the past, but also experiments that are happening in the present. And Kelly even admits in her speeches that the research that's happening now is bad and we should stop it. But she doesn't address the argument that when we utilize the research from the past, we incentivize that very research that's happening right now. So you're creating the problem that you admit needs to be stopped. And then last of all, we have this idea of alternatives, which is really important. Again, it's self-fulfilling. If we say it's okay for this to happen, then we put ourselves in a situation 10 years later where now we are reliant on the information. If we take an absolute stance from the beginning that it is not okay to conduct experimentation or use results from that experimentation, then we don't get into this problem in the first place. I want to end my case with the, quote, unfortunate experiment, which refers to a case in New Zealand where women with cervical cancer were deceived and mistreated, resulting in their deaths. And I think this is so indicative of the attitude of Kelly's side on this issue. Well, it's unfortunate that happened, but, and I just want to remind everybody that nothing said before the word but really matters. Thank you, Josh. Kelly, the last word is yours. We all love being on a high horse, don't we? But the problem here is that Josh is refusing to engage with reality. He brings up criteria in his speech, his final speech, how many people, what's the ratio, who decides. And I pointed out that at the very beginning that having criteria at all in an unanswerable sense such as this makes this an impossible question to answer. So undoing everything that we have established in the status quo off of questions we cannot definitively answer is no better than the questions that Josh has about keeping it. So since you can't answer these questions, as it's impossible, let's take this magical thinking about, let's just ignore all of the research that has an unethical origin. We don't really know what ethical means in a lot of instances because there's a lot of gray areas, but we'll get rid of it all. Take it to its logical conclusion. Science is the framework for a lot of other things that happen in society, such as how doctors treat patients independent of a scientific relationship, such as how governments treat people. What this could potentially mean, it's going to sound rad to start with, and then it's going to start to sound scary. What this could potentially mean is 
we can't use the White House anymore because slave labor was used to, to build it. I'm fine with that. But where do we where do we extend that? We can no longer use currency anymore because the American monetary system was built upon slave labor. Then we have no money anymore and society can't function. Can't clothe ourselves because most of the things that we own due to fast fashion were made in unfair labor conditions. Can't take the medicines for all the reasons that Josh already said. So we're in a situation where we're in complete anarchy when we have none of the systems that, that currently exist because there are no systems that currently exist that don't have some element of an unethical origin in them. Perhaps the more sustainable thing to do, the more practical thing to do, and the more equitable thing to do is to actually use them, but acknowledge the basis of, of everything that contributed to them, to actually understand that the reasons we are in these positions and have the privileges that we are afforded right now is because so many people were abused along the way. We are to completely abandon those systems. We lose the ability to acknowledge what brought those systems about and how unfair it was. Josh harps on me about privilege a lot, which is so interesting because despite the fact that so many people in these medical experiments were in underprivileged communities, the people who would bear the cost of everything he's talking about are most likely going to be the people who are currently underprivileged. I don't know how we make a decision between the people of the past and the people of now in Josh's world, but I'm going to choose the people of now. And I think that's consistent with how most other people would choose to allocate resources and preserve life. For all of these reasons, once again, I regretfully acknowledge the origins of this problematic science that is keeping me alive. All right. Thank you both for a very interesting debate. Your arguments have caused me to rethink my position on a question that I didn't actually think was debatable going in. So thank you. I'll now take a few moments to consider what I've, what I've got written down and crown the victor. All right, and with the magic of editing, no time has passed at all. In order to ramp up the drama, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say who won last and spend a whole bunch of time explaining why I thought the things I thought in judging this round first. So the viscerality of Josh's argument actually really helped me step outside the mindset of this being just a numbers game, which was most of what Kelly's argument was, right? Uh, at the core of Josh's argument, he had the idea of one for all and all for one. This idea that to compromise our morality and to our, allow those of us that are in positions of privilege to rationalize away the suffering of the past and the suffering of those far away would lose something so fundamental to us that it's worth sacrificing all of the medical progress of the 21st century in order to ensure that this doesn't happen again, or at least to ensure that we're fighting back against this moral failure, this continuing moral failure. But despite spending a lot of time highlighting how Kelly didn't provide us with a line in the sand, the main reason why losing that fundamental thing to us was bad that Josh provided ultimately was a practical harm, that we would repeat and entrench a system that causes abuse. Given that, when weighing the two arguments, I only had to look at Kelly's arguments to determine who would win this debate, because Kelly's arguments in turn not only highlighted how those in power in Josh's ideal world would still hurt underprivileged peoples, but she also kind of hit back not only on a pragmatic impact, but ultimately on how Josh wasn't railing against a contained, solvable system that he claimed uh, entrenched and repeated abuse and actually claimed as uncharitable. He, I think he actually showed it. But Kelly's point, especially in the final uh, summary arguments, was that he was arguing that it would be wise to take a hardline stance against something that was integral not only to science, but rather the human race as a whole. Right. And when she kind of broadened the world out. To me, that was very convincing because then at that point, were I to believe Josh's points fully, humanity would never have been human at all. And so we get this kind of twisted logic of is there really anything to lose if this is what's integral to us relying on the atrocities of the past to create a brighter future for tomorrow? There was a Jewish scholar that I read who 
spoke about the angel of history. He was building off on Hegel's slaughter bench of history. And I know I'm getting dense, but it's a great analogy because he talked about how this angel of history was constantly flying forward and it was sweeping up the detrius, the moral failings and atrocities of humanity's past and sweeping us ever forward. And if I were to do a crude summary of what I took away from that analogy is that the best we can do is frantically try to sweep away and fix and cope with the atrocities of the past as this angel of history sweeps them ever forward into tomorrow. And ultimately, I felt that Kelly's arguments aligned most or made the most sense given that thought. Oh, bad adjudication. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> so for those reasons, I'm happy to say that I feel that Kelly won this round. All right, Kelly, we're all tied up now in our debate series, one versus one. Like you said last time, if any of our listeners rightfully disagree with this adjudication, <laughs> then they can go onto our Twitter or Facebook pages and let Thomas know, both of which can be found at <laughs> Indubitably Pod. And barring that, it looks like, Kelly, at some point, we're going to have to have our tiebreaker debate in an upcoming episode. Can Thomas come back and judge that one too? No, I think I'll have Neri come back and judge that one again. <laughs> no. <laughs> I look forward to hearing it on the podcast. It has been so satisfying to finally beat Josh because I don't think I've been able to do that yet on this podcast in any capacity. Oh, no, wait. I won the veganism debate. Never mind. Oh, my gosh. Here <laughs> we go. <laughs> look what you've created, Thomas. I think we just have to keep doing this and keep score. And eventually one of us will be crowned the ultimate victor. So I think everybody should keep tuning into future episodes of Indubitably to see if I can like dominate this entire podcast. Well, regardless of who dominates, thank you everybody for listening. And thank you, Thomas, for moderating. Appreciate you. I mean, really, Josh, the takeaway here is that you should have offered me more money. <laughs> well, I didn't know you were going to come with this sweeping angel of history and time and morality nonsense to let Kelly win. <laughs> let me win. I, I see you're in a rush to end this podcast. You can go with your wounds. I uh, like my cat. I don't have wounds to lick. I just have to uh, provide Thomas with some. <laughs>